Welcome to A World Where Living Works, stories of science and survival, bringing together our heads and our hearts to build a suicide-safer world. Talking openly about suicide is so important, but we also recognise that listening to this series may bring up some tough emotions. If so, please talk to a trusted family member, friend or local support service about how you are feeling. Visit livingworks.net and click on Find Safety for International Crisis Services. We are there to help you. This podcast is brought to you by Living Works, a network of local suicide first aid trainers in your community and communities around the world. Visit livingworks.net to find out how you can play your part in suicide prevention. You're listening to A World Where Living Works, and I'm your host, Kim Borodow. First of all, I'd like to acknowledge traditional owners of the beautiful lands, wherever you're listening. I'd also like to acknowledge everyone out there who's been impacted by suicide. The pain it brings to our lives, but also the desire to make positive change for all of us to live well. So we know Living Works today as a global leader in suicide intervention. Thousands of trainers in workplaces and communities around the world teaching gold-class suicide first aid programs like the two-day assist workshop, the half-day safe talk, suicide alert helper workshop, and now the 90-minute online interactive introduction to suicide first aid, Living Works Start. These are programs that have been endorsed in more than 50 peer-reviewed journals around the world that have informed international policy and are implemented everywhere from schools to military bases, hospitals to sports clubs, and everything in between. But do you know how it all started almost 40 years ago? In 1983, to be precise. Coming together from diverse backgrounds, including social work, psychiatry and counselling, four men, Richard Ramsey, Brian Tanney, Roger Tierney and Bill Lang, had a radical idea. What if they could empower everyone to help save lives from suicide? Setting out to address the lack of effective skills among both lay people and professionals, they developed what was the precursor to the current Living Works Assist program and a train-the-trainer model to disseminate it. Our third season of A World Where Living Works is an extra special one, as I talk with Living Works co-founder Richard Ramsey. In each episode, we'll discuss the evolution of Living Works and suicide intervention practices where we've come from and where we're going when it comes to saving lives from suicide and supporting people to live well. Richard, a very warm welcome to you. I'm so excited to talk with you in this series. Hello, Kim. Great to talk with you today. Now, before we get started, let's clue in our listeners a little bit more about your background. So Richard began his career in the John Howard Society in Ottawa in 1966 where he trained volunteers to work at one of Ottawa's very first crisis hotlines before moving back to his native Alberta in 1969. Richard was Director of Care at Edmonton's Maple Ridge Residential Treatment Centre until 1975, when he moved to Calgary to take a position as a social work professor. It was while serving as a professor at the University of Calgary that he became involved in volunteer activities coordinated by the Canadian Mental Health Association and met fellow Living Works co-founder, Brian Tanney. Richard has been honoured with numerous awards for his contributions to social work and suicide prevention, both locally and globally. He retired as a professor in 2004, was president of Living Works from its inception through to 2017, 
where he then transitioned into a role focusing on mentorship and guidance and to this day is in that role for staff, leaders and trainers around the world. So Richard, tell us a little bit about how the first ever Living Works training program came about. Yeah, actually, we started in our own micro environment in the province of Alberta, because we were also connected to a state or provincial strategy that was just getting started. And I was part of that strategy. And it had four things. One was training, one was to build up a library of information. One was a broad-based community coordination approach. And the other was a research center kind of approach. And so I was asked to head up the training side, be the training lead. And I was also working with a local mental health association. And there was also a psychiatrist at the University of Calgary. And I was in the faculty of social work, Brian Tanney, Dr. Tanney. And we were the original two that worked on these ideas. And so we were able to create a pilot curriculum, which was, ended up being two days. And the reason we did two days was because the literature that we were reading, apart from knowledge and skill development, the literature was saying that if you're working in a taboo subject area, you can't impart knowledge and skills without paying attention to the attitudes that people bring into the training room. And if you don't pay attention to their attitudes, they'll sit on those attitudes for the two days and then just go home and do whatever they've always believed. So you had to figure out a way to get people to release the attitude in a safe and challenging environment. So it was actually kind of funny in the sense that Dr. Tanny and I went to a filmmaker at the university that I had been working with on another project. And we said, so how do we get attitudes out of people without them climbing up right from the beginning? Or... The other one, we'd all experienced going into learning experiences where the instructors said, look, we're going to talk about attitudes. There is no right or wrong. So feel free to say whatever you want to say. Well, we had always experienced that to the extent that the shoe finally would drop somewhere in the training. And the shoe being dropped was is that the instructor would, in fact, tell you what was the right attitude or the wrong attitude. <laughs> So they basically lied to you at the beginning. (laughs) So we said, if we're going to promise that, we have to make sure we don't lie to them. We have to stay true to the openness of the attitudes. And then we discovered that you had to give people time to decide whether or not you were trustworthy enough. And when the filmmaker, he said, oh, really? He said, I've just come back from Israel, from a master's in radio and television in Tel Aviv. And he said, we learned a new technique about how you draw out people's feelings or attitudes. And he said, it's called a trigger tape. And what it is that you build a a movie with very little script in it, but lots of visual. And if you present that to your audience, they will start to relate to the visuals Even if they try and sit on their hands, they won't be able to do it. They'll blurt something out at some point. (laughs) And so he said, I think that's what you have to do, build that kind of movie. So, yeah, we thought, well, that's a good idea. So then he said, what I'd like, though, is to know some real doctors and some real social workers and some real helping people. And I'm going to go out and spend time with them. And then I'll come back with an idea. 
I still remember Brian Tanny and I looking at each other and then over to him and saying, well, you've got a real doctor and a real social worker sitting right in front of you. And he brushed it off. He said, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. But he says, I want to get out on the road with somebody actually doing whatever it is they're doing. I want to go on this journey, not just with you two in the office. That's right. (laughs) So anyway, we gave him several names and he disappeared for several weeks, actually. (laughs) And then he came back and sat us down. And one of the first things he said to us was, hmm, he says, actually, you guys were pretty close to being correct way back then when I talked to you. (laughs) (laughs) So it was a small apology, I think. But anyway, so that's what we did. We built this film that was designed to create different scenarios from the literature about what was typical. You know, I don't want to talk about it because I'm going to cause somebody to think about it. Or I don't really like people who try and kill themselves because they get in the way of people who really want help. So the attitude of, well, if you're going to do it, do it right. (laughs) So we found a whole bunch of those scenarios, and then we built them into characters. And so we weren't trying to stereotype a policeman or a doctor or anything, but we made decisions that this scenario maybe fits with this. Maybe more likely with that kind of character. Yeah. And our main interest is, can we build it so that it will draw out attitudes from the audience? So that's what we did. So I don't think the textbooks would tell you that that's the way to build a curriculum, go out and build the movie first and then uh, wrap the text or the curriculum around it. (laughs) Yeah, draw in people's emotions and attitudes. I love that, though. But how did you even come to the point where you went to speak to that filmmaker? So taking it back a step, when you and Brian were talking, you just shooting the breeze in your office. What led you to wanting to do something about this, I guess? Well, there was two things. One was that uh, I was the suicide prevention volunteer in the local mental health association. And they had a system that said that the volunteer is the head of the unit. The staff worked for the volunteer. Oh, really? (laughs) So it was kind of unique. And so they had me involved in thinking about training and thinking about five-year plans. And their organization was basically the only organization in our province that gave a damn about suicide. And they were an advocacy organization, not a treatment or clinical group. So they were constantly trying to get the government to change policy and that sort of thing. How did you get involved with them in the first place? Well, what happened was is that I'd been involved in setting up two crisis line agencies like Lifeline, in one in eastern Canada and Ottawa and one in Edmonton, north of Calgary. So when I moved to Calgary, the head of the local mental health association came to me and said, we know what you've been doing in the past, and we'd like you to continue doing that with us. Will you be our volunteer in suicide prevention? Plus, In my social work teaching, we had to have students in practicum agencies, and I had all of my students in that agency, (laughs) and they were assigned to work in different parts of the agency. And so what happened actually was is that I was working with the students four days a week, and then one day a week, we would be back at the university in a classroom. So a lot of people didn't even know I worked at the university. They thought I was with the local mental health association. Just 100% with the organization. Anyway, they kept adding on to what they wanted me to do. 
In the meantime, Dr. Tanny and I had met in what was called a crisis care coordinating committee in the city. And he was a, an emergency room psychiatrist, and he claimed to be a community psychiatrist. And I had met community psychiatrists when I studied at McGill in Montreal. So I kind of knew what they were all about. And they definitely weren't behind the couch type of clinicians. But I wasn't sure I could believe Tanny, whether he really was or he wasn't. So anyway, the head of psychiatry at our university used to run off at the mouth about one or two times a year, complaining about all these non-professional lay people messing up these experts in mental health. And he would always fight or argue or make a big fuss in the press about this mental health agency, because they were the epitome of the non-professional. Of regular people just yeah. going out and being where they shouldn't be involved, yeah. allegedly. So anyway, they came to me and they said, we want to prepare a five-year going forward strategy plan. And would you chair that? And I said, well, actually, no, you've got me involved with too many things. So I'm going to say no, which was unusual. I said, but I got an idea. I know this psychiatrist who says he's a community psychiatrist. If we can get him to chair, then it'll be like putting the fox in the chicken coop. And we'll find out whether he's a true community psychiatrist, or he's just hiding behind a cloth, if you want. Anyway, he agreed, and he was what he said he was. So then he also had a brilliant idea, was he was going to put together a committee, a task force, that was made up of a pairing of an academic and a professional. So he got an academic medical doctor and a practitioner. He got an academic social worker and a practitioner and psychology and nursing. And okay. And he put them together and he said, we're going to be involved in a think tank. And what he was trying to do is to say, look, all I want you to do is come out every Tuesday night and think, meaning no work. You don't have to work. And so they bought into it. And so they came out and we thought for, I don't know how many weeks. And finally, we put together the final report, the five-year strategy, which included training and various things. And by this time, the committee members realized that they were close to finishing their thinking job. So they started to leave saying, you told us we didn't have to work. So we're out of here. Thank you very much. It was good fun. Yeah. We're not implementing the plan. We're just thinking. Right. So that forced Tanny and I to look at each other and say, Jesus, we never really put that into our plan. And it looks like you and I are stuck with having to do this. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> That's what got us into the filmmaker because we had a... And thinking, how can we practically address this? Yeah, and our, our strategy said that you had to do three things. You had to do upstream prevention, you had to do downstream postvention, and you had to do middle stream intervention. And what we had learned at that point was is that there's no point going upstream with an awareness program to say, you know, if you've got this kind of problem, go see your friendly doctor, because we knew that these people were all scared of the issue and they wouldn't deal with you directly. They just shove you off somewhere else. So we said, yeah, and we got to get to the post bench, but that's kind of down the road. So we've got to do something to train these frontline people so they won't be afraid once we go upstream and encourage people to seek help. 
So that was why we had. Isn't it interesting that plans now um, are saying we've got to get back to training the GPs, you know, we've got to really support your general practitioners so that because we're always saying go talk to your GP if you've got a problem. And this is what you were talking about 35 years ago to say need to look at the people who are on the front line. But we couldn't get those GPs to come because they always had an excuse about it was too long or I don't have time or I got a busy practice. So they were and still are the, the biggest challenge to get them into some kind of education and training. I mean, ideally, the way would be to get it up front into the higher education curriculum so that they got the training. And that's happening in a few places, but it's not very prevalent. And the reason I went to the filmmaker is because he and I were working on another project where, well, it was actually he was doing it, but they were setting up what they called it begins with a friend project. So somebody who was coming out of a mental hospital was matched with a volunteer who helped them with day-to-day living. So they helped them go to the grocery store, helped them do basic community chores. They actually either invited them to their own home or they visited the person's family. So they filmed this particular combination for about three or four months. Then they edited it down and came up with sort of like a 30-minute training program for new volunteers. (laughs) And so I liked what he was doing in that project. And so that's when we sat down and said, well, here's another challenge. What do we do with the fact that we got to get attitudes into the curriculum, especially with a taboo subject like suicide? And that's when he said, oh, glad you asked. I just got back from Tel Aviv. Well, especially I love that it begins with a friend because, you know, when you help someone with their shopping and all that sort of thing, you're getting every other conversation under the sun, not just talking about the practical issues of the day. So if without some sort of support, they're having those conversations totally unsupported. Yeah. And that was also the beginnings of, well, actually we, we were tied into another piece of research that had, had been done 10 or more years before we got started. And it was the community-based crisis intervention type of study in the United States And their conclusion was, is that people who were in crisis, suicide included, when they went to kind of a mental health expert, the mental health expert would, in many respects, remove them from their natural community and put them in hospital or do something like that. And so their conclusion was that the expert is actually moving them away from the very place where they have their supports and need help. And the experts of the day, and they probably still do today to some extent, their idea of what was coined back then as gatekeeper training. And the idea was gatekeeper meant that somebody was at the gate, figuratively speaking, and they were able to either open the gate into more help, if you want, or they could shut the gate and turn you away or send you on your way. So he, that researcher coined the idea of gatekeeper. And then out of that study, they said that the mental health experts were also saying that the job of the gatekeeper is to go and find people who are at risk and then get them over to the expert and then get the hell out of our way and don't meddle in our expert work. And that's when Tani and I, when we saw that, we realized, oh my God, we're working with one of those layperson kind of organizations. 
And we already knew how powerful they could be. (laughs) So we agreed with the researchers who said, you should not make automatic referral to an expert a standard operating procedure. You might have to do that, but don't make it a requirement. Wow. So this is where gatekeeper training and that concept of gatekeeper went from theory to practice. I think that's a great place for us to pause today, Richard. Thank you so much. In our next episode, we go into a little more detail about how this suicide intervention training developed and evolved. But to end this episode, I wanted to leave you with the words of one of the co-founders who features so heavily in today's conversation with Richard, Brian Tenney. When Brian was asked what was different about the training developed by them in response to suicide, he talked about the fact that this group were among the first to identify suicide as a community-wide problem or a community health problem rather than one based in mental health. He said, living works will be remembered for the idea to cross disciplines and cross helping barriers, which was something really unusual at the time. Probably most remembered for creating a very good quality teaching program. It will also be remembered for innovation in the teaching processes and the content of what we've taught. We were really well ahead of most people who are writing textbooks. Better than that, If we discovered something in the textbook, we were quickly able to translate it into the technology transfer and knowledge dissemination process. We got it into our teaching programs. What we discovered is that things which are still being written and published in an academic level, we already teach them to thousands of people in the community. I think this was our contribution in the sense that we short-circuited the idea of the ivory tower of the university which was Richard's belief in community-based social work and my belief in community psychiatry. Well said, Brian. Thank you again for sharing your time and insights with us, Richard. Okay, bye now. I hope you've enjoyed hearing about the start of Living Works from the perspective of one of its founders. Join me for more conversation with Richard in the next episode. If you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love you to subscribe on the usual channels. Write a five-star review and most importantly, share it with your family, friends and colleagues on social media, tagging Living Works. This podcast is brought to you by Living Works, a network of local suicide first aid trainers in your community and communities around the world. Visit livingworks.net to find out how you can play your part in suicide prevention. A reminder that if this episode has brought up tough emotions for you, talk to a trusted family member, friend or local support service about how you're feeling. Visit livingworks.net and click on Find Safety for International Crisis Services. We are there to help you.